You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to John 5, 30 to 47. John 5, 30 to 47 is where we uh, will pick back up. If you're new to redemption or just joining us uh, today, we've been working our way through John's gospel in this series called Come and Believe, where John, the uh, disciple who's writing this book, really has just one purpose for us, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we would have life in His name. And last week, as we've been working our way through, we entered into one of Jesus' classes. Into his classroom, we took our desk, we pulled out our notes, we pulled out the scriptures here, and Jesus had some lessons to teach us about who he is and what authority he has. Uh, We had a a really a, a theology lesson, a systematic theology, as we covered topics on the Trinity and Christology, or who Jesus is, and soteriology, how we are saved, and even into eschatology, or what we believe about and what we hope for in the end. And through the class, Jesus really made three massive claims, if you remember from last week. He claimed these things about himself, that he was equal with the Father, and therefore must be honored as God. He also claimed that he was sent from the Father, and thus we must believe that he is the Savior. And finally, he claimed that he is the Son of Man, Daniel's Son of Man. And so we must anticipate our resurrection for the authority that he has. But here's the thing. Class isn't over. The text continues on. John 5 uh, continues on. And today we come to the second half of the class. It continues on. For in the first class, Jesus made some claims about himself, the claims that I just said. And and you and I both know that that many people make claims about themselves, do they not? Children make claims on the playground about who is the best baseball player, about who is the strongest. And they make claims without any sort of proof, without any sort of witnesses or validation. That's not just something on the playground. Media makes assertions or claims all day. Your feed, your TV screen are inundated with the assertions or the claims that they make without proof or without any valid witnesses, right? News anchors will make assertions about our economy and then uh, interview some random person off the street in order to back their claim. Talk shows are built on this. Athletic uh, talk shows in particular are built uh, on this about making assertions about who's the best or who's the worst or who they should trade for or what they should do or why this coach is a bonehead or why this coach is the greatest coach of all time. And it fills the airwaves day after day, hour after hour, and we're taken in by these assertions. And Jesus knows this. He knows our propensities in these ways. And so he makes an argument He doesn't just assert some things about himself, for an assertion is different than an argument, for an argument is a claim backed by credible witnesses and proofs uh, to back that claim or assertion up. 
And so the second half of the class today, as we come into it, is now Jesus laying out the witnesses for us, leading us through the evidence of who he is and what authority he has, and therefore what our life should look like in light of who he is. And so we could just say this simply about the second part of class, that numerous witnesses validate who Jesus is and what authority he has. Write that down. It's in your notes there. It's just the second half here of numerous witnesses validate or authenticate who Jesus is and what authority he has. So come to the text, write that down, but then come to the text. I want to read it for us so you can see what uh, Jesus is pleading with us here, and then we can consider them for ourselves. Listen and follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read it here. John 5, 30 to 47, say this. I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus speaking, remember? He's teaching us. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word for God's people. Continuation of the class. The witnesses have been presented before us. The the evidence is there for us to examine. And Jesus begins this uh, uh, second half of class really, uh, again, acknowledging his complete connection to and equality with the Father. He says in this uh, second half, as it picks up, he says, I can do nothing on my own. He is in complete connection with the, the Father. Jesus has zero independent motives or agendas or activities that the Father does not know about or is not in line with. His will and the Father's will are one and the same, though in two distinct per, uh, persons, but in perfect harmony. 
is really the claim that we explored in greater detail last week, just in summary here, where the father and son are equal yet distinct, an equality and a distinction that they walk in tandem together where they do not do anything on their own. Again, a good example of how these principles play out in God's creation in uh, marriages and in the church. It's not good for man to be alone. God has designed marriage, one man, one woman, to be one flesh, uh, working together, equal yet distinct. And also, again, in the church where we together as God's people are not here in our own accord, not here to seek our own agenda or our own will, but together uh, seeking the glory of God going vertical in our worship, together knowing that this isn't about us, it's not even primarily for us, but our worship, our coming together is for God. But Jesus makes these claims about himself now. He says, I'm equal with the Father, but he knows what they are thinking in their own heart. Prove it. Prove it. And he acknowledges them by, by even just saying, let me prove it to you in verse 31. He's saying, if I'm the only one bearing witness about myself, it isn't true. For common throughout the Bible and in those days, a, a, a claim would be validated on the witness of two or three persons. If two or three credible witnesses came along and said, yes, this is true, then it could be believed. And Jesus knows this. He knows our minds work in this way, and so he gives us the evidence to consider. The evidence to consider around us. Consider the witnesses first here. And what's interesting about Jesus, he, does, he knows that it's like two or three witnesses, and guess how many he gives us in the text? Four, right? He gives us four. It's like he's just going overboard for them to give it. So here's the first one. Consider the witness of John the Baptist. Join me in verse 32 as he begins to talk about uh, this uh, man and notice the, the glowing admiration that Jesus had for his cousin John. He even calls him in verse 35 a burning and shining lamp. He has a great affection for his cousin here and he calls him a witness about me and a witness to the truth. Jesus who was the truth and they themselves had, had sent to John to ask about him, as we'll see in just a moment in, in chapter 1. But he's referring to this. He says, there's another who bears witness about me. You sent, you asked him. And so the question for us, well, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? What was his testimony? Who did he say that Jesus was? And does it match with who Jesus says he is? What do you think, church? Think it matches? Let's examine the evidence. Go in a... Uh, in, uh, Back into chapter 1 here. Just flip over a few pages. I want us to see this here. John chapter 1. As we consider the witness of John the Baptist here, what did, uh, what did John say about John? Who said about Jesus? Now, I know it's kind of confusing here. We've run into this along the way in our study through John. We have John the disciple who wrote this book, this gospel here, who's writing about John the Baptist, right? And there's like so many, so many different Johns here. But join chapter 1. This is what John the disciple says about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. This is verse 8 now. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John came as a messenger to shine light on the true light, who was Jesus, right? And so what did, what did, what did, they, what did they do? They, they, they go and ask Jesus, then later hear about it in verse 19, just come down to it and says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? 
Now, that's what uh, John is referring to, or Jesus is referring to, rather, back in chapter 5. You sent to John. You asked him, what did he say? Well, that little dialogue back and forth, they're like, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John's like, nope. I'm just here as the messenger announcing that Jesus is the one who is coming. And so he's like, nope, nope, nope. Verse 29 of chapter 1, the next day, then Jesus comes towards him. And what does he say about him? Behold the what? The Lamb of God, you got it, who takes away the sin of the world. But not only this, go down to verse 34. What else does he say about Jesus? I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, he has a consistent witness because the, uh, the new day comes up in verse 35. It's the next day. And guess what John the Baptist again says about Jesus? Next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, on repeat, Behold the Lamb of God. Over and over, John's consistent witness is this is the long-awaited Messiah. In chapter 3, after Jesus uh, talks to Nicodemus, we have this lengthy kind of uh, teaching. We step into one of John the Baptist's uh, classes, and he teaches on the greatness of Christ, how John must decrease as Christ increases, as he, as the announcer, as the messenger, is fading off the scene, uh, and now Jesus is coming into prominence in his ministry. And so Jesus now is, uh, uh, is, is, is at the forefront, and John's testimony, the Jews just embraced it as if it was a matchstick here, here today, and gone just for a moment. But even still, John's testimony burns bright for us today, bearing witness to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's witness number one. But there's a second witness that John uh, Jesus refers to, and that's of his own works. Come back to uh, John chapter 5. Come back, come back to the text. We had the first witness of John the Baptist, but now his own works here. He says this in verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so, uh, would you agree with this, church? As God, Jesus should have a unique supernatural ability over his creation. Is that a legitimate ability that somebody who is indeed God should have? A, an ability to uh, over his creation. What do you think? Does he? Should he? Well, absolutely. His words, or his works, rather, authenticate his words. His signs of validate his claims. We've seen this three times already just in the book of John. Up until this point, if all we had was Jesus' life, what have we seen already in three different scenarios? At the, uh, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus changes the molecular structure of H2O into wine. Later again in Cana, Jesus brings the boy from the, on the brink of death back to, to life when he himself is 20 miles away. And then what led to the hullabaloo, even in this very passage here at the beginning of chapter 5, is Jesus heals an ungrateful invalid after 38 years of being unable to walk. Three things, three demonstrations, three authentications of Jesus' own work over his creation. This is showing, bearing witness that he does indeed have the ability that he is claiming about himself. But there's one, there's two, but there's even a third witness of the Father's own words. 
What did then uh, the Father have to say? Jesus is here claiming that he is uh, uh, the, uh, the Father, Father God's Son. But just because he says something, that doesn't necessarily mean it is true. Does the Father back it up, right? If I were to say, I am Steve's son, and then Steve's like, no, he isn't, right? He would need to uh, validate that or say it. And so uh, he says in verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Those voices you've never heard, his form you've never seen. And so what is he referring to? When did the Father validate this claim? At Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, though only mentioned here in, uh, uh, in, in the book of John, it's referred to more specifically in Matthew chapter 3. And Now, likely the Jews that are here at this were not there at his baptism to hear the Father's voice nor see the form of the Holy Spirit take on the form of a dove, nor they have they seen some other physical manifestation. But the Father authenticates this in Matthew chapter 3. Turn over there for just a second so you can see it. Matthew's the first gospel. Just go backwards a little bit. Find John, then Luke, then Mark, and then Matthew. Chapter 3, and the story begins in verse 13. Let's see what the Father has to say about Jesus, the Son. It says this, Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. I found it. It says this, And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John knew the, uh, the hierarchy here. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Verse 16, But when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's one of those moments where we, uh, uh, maybe you've said this very thing to the Lord, like, well, Lord, if you want me to do that, you'll have to open up the heavens and speak audibly. I'll never move. I'll never do that. I won't have any more kids. You will have to open up the heavens and, and speak, right? Well, here we have the heavens. The heavens opened up. The Father has spoken. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father authenticates the claims of Jesus. We have the witness of, of uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' own works, the Father's own words, and yet there's a fourth one, the very Word of God itself. Look how it continues on in verse 38. He says uh, this, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. See, here's the, the thing, church. They're, they're blind to what the scriptures are teaching. Though they have immersed themselves in it, many of the, the, those sitting in class likely had memorized massive portions of their Old Testament. They knew this inside and out, searching it diligently, and yet they can't see Christ as the unifying theme of it all. Though it bears witness to him over and over as the long-awaited hero that they uh, anticipate, as the one who makes all the stories and all the war and all the things that are happening, and he's the one who makes it all make sense. He's the one who fills, fulfills rather the law's every demand. They can't see him. Though he is referred to and a fulfillment of so many different things in the, in the scriptures. Jesus, he's the snake crusher of Genesis 3. 
Jesus is the promised heir of Genesis 12. He's the lion of Judah of Genesis 49. He's the great I am of Exodus 3. He's the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. He's the atoning lamb of Leviticus 16, the greater prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the redeemer referred to in in Ruth chapter 3 and the reigning promised king from David's throne in 2 Samuel 7. He's the priest of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the authoritative son of man of Daniel 7. And just those are a sampling of the Old Testament witnesses to Christ of who he is and what authority he has. Do you think the evidence is plentiful, church? Are there witnesses that Christ is who he says he is as the Son of God, as our Savior, and he has an authority over our lives, an authority to save us? Evidence is plentiful. The witnesses are, are massive. And, and I, I feel like in some ways Jesus has taken this into a class and we're like one of those movie detectives that you see with their evidence board. You know, it looks like this with all the, like the newspaper clippings that the, you know, the red, uh, the, the red thread connecting it and underlines and circles and all that. See, the witnesses, the evidence is abundant. There are many that would back up in a claim, or the Jesus claims that he is God. But church, let me just ask this. As you are listening and as you've read this, what is the tone of Jesus' teaching here? Is his classroom just instructive and informative? What's the classroom atmosphere like in Jesus' teaching here? It's kind of tense, isn't it? There's a a, a tension here as he's making his case. He's also accusing those who listen. He's accusing them for their rejection of the evidence. For even in verse 40, look what it says. He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's clear here. The, the witnesses are before us. It is. There's, there's a multitude of them, and yet they refuse. Why? Well, they refuse because it says they have the word. Uh, they, they, they do not have the word abiding in him, and thus they won't believe Jesus. They refuse because they do not have his love uh, residing in them, and thus they reject Jesus. They refuse because they're seeking uh, not God's glory, but their own glory. And they refuse because they do not uh, put their hope in, in, in God to save them, but in their ability to, uh, to memorize and to know the Old Testament. And thus they refuse. And even in the tone and the tension here, it, it should cause us to not only cons- to consider like the witnesses around us, but to examine the evidence within us. To examine that evidence within us. See, we can even uh, give a head nod to these facts. So, all right, I'll give you that, Jesus. Maybe you are who you say, or I believe the witnesses are there. I can't deny the evidence but we can give a head nod without there ever being any sort of heart change. Without there being any sort of transformation here, which is ultimately what Jesus is after. He's poking holes in their, their, their study of Scripture. He's poking their holes in their, in their understanding, in their self-righteousness, that they would examine what the condition of their own heart is to see if they do indeed believe 
See, these, are, these truths, these claims that Jesus made aren't just words on a page. They're not just uh, you know, words for our ears, nor is this authority just something that we begrudgingly come under. But no, he is a God whom we love, and his authority and his word is something that we delight in, that he leads us into what is good. Into what is good. And so how do we know? Well, how do we know? How can we get at the heart to see God do this work, to be convinced of the witnesses and to be convicted by who Jesus is and to live then in light of it? Well, and even in Jesus' accusations, we can kind of frame them with these four heart-penetrating questions that Jesus makes towards the, towards the Jewish people in, the, in his class and for us today, even as we listen, as we examine the evidence. Here's the first question. Does, does God's word abide in me? Does God's word abide in me? I read it just a moment ago here, but Jesus accused me. He's like, you don't have God's word in you. You search and search, but you don't believe because it's not abiding in you. What do we know about this book, church? The book that we hold in our hands. It's our food, is it not? It's our lifeline. It's where we find our soul uh, nourishment. Without it, a regular intake of the Word of God, our soul withers away. In the same way that our bodies would shrivel up and wither away without proper nutrients and nourishment that we give to it each and every day, so too our soul withers without the Scriptures. So why we need to consistently abide in the Word so that it abides in us, being in it and saturating our minds with it. And we don't do this just merely because we have to. That's the mistake that the Jewish uh, people had made. They were doing so just to earn their salvation. Though sometimes, I know even when we don't want to, we just need to do it because it's a discipline. We know that it's good for us, but it's our heart posture in it. We don't intake God's word. We don't abide in it just because we have to, because we're trying to earn our salvation in some way. No, we do so because we get to. Because we have God's word here to feed us. And unlike really any other time in human history, do we have access to the word of God here? We do so because we know God meets us in the pages of his book. He's here to teach us and to instruct us and to encourage us and to convict us and correct us and train us in righteousness here. And the Jewish people this day made the mistake of thinking that they were saved by their Bible reading by their Bible memorization. But no, we know this, church, we know this, right? Eternal life comes by believing in Jesus, not by believing in our Bible reading, right? And yet, as God's Word abides in us, as we take it in, as we chew on it, as we think on it, as we make our decisions in light of it, as we lead our uh, life underneath its authority, as we bring our emotions under check within it, as we shape our thinking by it, as we then not only intake it, but we also output it and we encourage others uh, with it and we uh, help others with it. And then our own soul is in turn, even in those moments, warmed by it and instructed by it. We know that it is abiding in us in the manner in the manner that God intended it to does God's word abide in me but second there's a question for us to examine our own self in us does God's love reside in me does God's love reside in me the text here in verse 40 is like yeah you refuse to come to me that you may have life I do not receive glory from other people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's an indictment, isn't it? 
He knows, Jesus knows their refusal because he knows what exists in their heart. And we've seen this all along the way in, in, in John. He knows exactly what's going on in us. He knows, he knows exactly what's going on in the people. He knows the thoughts that they're thinking. He knows the passions that are driving them. He knows their actions that they are doing, whether he's right there in front of them, seeing them with his own eyes or not. Jesus knows what is going on, and he knows that God's love does not reside within them. It's another way of indicting them, saying, you're not following the great commandment. But they put their stock in the very simple when, when asked, what is the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6.5? Do you know what it is, church? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And here he's, he's just saying, this doesn't, the most basic, the most simple things does not reside in you. And it's something that we need to examine even in our own hearts. In the sense of, like, am I convinced of God's love for me? Not in, like, the super proud way. Like, of course God loves me. Like, look at me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a specimen. I'm great. I'm beautiful. I, I can do all kinds of uh, great things. I'm intelligent. Like, not that. Like, yeah, sorry, I'm not that. You're thinking, right? No, no, no. Am I convinced of God's love for me despite me? despite me, and that because of Christ, because of what he did on the cross, knowing me full well that now I am secure in God's love because I did nothing to earn it. I did nothing to deserve it. I did nothing to merit it where it was this the repayment for my uh, good deeds or my good decisions. No, uh, I am secure in God's love because of what Christ has done. And thus, because I am convinced of it, then my thoughts and my desires and my actions are then driven by the love of God. Because he loves me, I want to love him in return. And because he loves me, I want others to know this love as well. So I will serve him. It exists in me so it can spill out of me to those around me. Does God's love reside in you, church? This is what he's getting at. These are the questions, the heart-penetrating questions in light of his claims to be God and to save us. Does his love reside in me? But, uh, But he asks another. He penetrates here with this question. Does God's glory move me? And these two things are tied up, really uh, closely connected, our love for God and love for others, our love for ourselves, and the glory of God as well. Look at what he says in verse 43. He says, I have come into my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? So I guess the Jewish people of that day, those in the class there, they are like us and easily tricked into giving glory to other humans. Glory in a worshipful sense, glory in a, uh, in a reverential sense, glory in, a, in, in, a, uh, in an ad- adorational sense here. Now we do this all the time, right? We laud athletes and celebrities all day and night. Right? We worship, uh, you know, the guy on San Diego State who made the last second shot. It was incredible, right? It's worship. We, we worship Caitlin Clark for how uh, incredible she is uh, in uh, the women's Final Four. Any of y'all watching March Madness here? It's been some great basketball games, right? 
and we laud them. And maybe you're not in sports, but we're, you, we're easily tricked into worshiping like the super moms on Instagram that seem to think that they have it all uh, together. And we, we put them on a pedestal. We pay kids millions of dollars for their name, image, and likeness. Furthermore, as verse 44 tells us, we love recognition ourselves. We love distinction, don't we? We love to be noticed for how great we are, how intelligent we are, how super we think we are. And Jesus seems to say in verse 44 that this is a hindrance to our belief. How can you believe? How can you believe Jesus is God and give him glory and honor when you're just seeking it for yourself? And so the question lingers, like, how moved are we then by God's glory? How, how quick are we to serve when no one else sees but God, where nobody will get the credit because we are anonymous and the only one anyone knows to think is God, or to thank is God himself? See, it's not titles, nor promotions, nor influence that move us into faith, nor to service. Are we being recognized? No, rather our life is moved by the glory of God. And it's just the simple joy of working for Christ that moves us into serving Him because we truly believe that He is the only God worthy to be worshipped and served. He's told us how to do that. He's told us the heart. He's shown us here that he is God. He's told us in his word, and yet this is a word that they, in this class there, Jesus had, they'd, they'd followed it up pretty bad. So much, though, that they even thought that they had mastered the word of God. Did you catch that? When, when in fact, they stood condemned under it. And that should really sober us up as we come to the end of of class here, as we examine the the evidence with this final question, like, does God's law condemn me? Does God's law condemn me? Jesus chides them in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. He already said, I am the judge. I do all these things. But he's like, I don't have to accuse you. My witnesses, all the things, my words, I don't have to. Moses does. It's like a mic drop moment for Jesus. They they put all their hope in it. They claimed to be sons of Moses. They were trying to follow in his footsteps. And this is just, this is scandalous to them. More scandalous than than what he said to the woman at the well. More scandalous than healing this invalid on a on a Sabbath when they are beside themselves in it. More scandalous than the claims here that uh, that uh, he is God. Now he is saying Moses condemns them with Moses' words. And so what is he getting at? Well, I just kind of follow Jesus' thinking here, his argument. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? Moses wrote those books. God gave them to Moses, Moses the law uh, that uh, is recorded and takes up much of, the, uh, of those five books, these laws and case studies and things that would govern them as a new nation. To get into the book of Joshua, and they are occupying the promised land. This, these were the words that would govern them as a people, both in their relationships with one another and how they would uh, uh, understand what is right and wrong. And there was case studies there for how they would punish crimes and how they would uh, uh, treat disease and sickness and stay clean and healthy. But most importantly, it showed them how they would meet with God. 
how God in, in his promise to be in their midst and their presence would give them a pathway to come into his presence. That's what Leviticus is all about. Remember when we preached through that and we studied that uh, last fall? That, and, and this is what it was about, that he would be their God. This is what would make them uh, distinct here. That was the point. But over the generations, they had proudly rejected God and turned the law into a show for their own holiness of how to prove to uh, the people around them that they were better than anyone else. And yet, even as we see in the Old Testament, as we saw earlier here, there's so much, even just through the first five books of the Bible, that are pointing to Christ, that are pointing to His coming and His fulfillment and His authority and His ability and His power over His creation. And yet they reject it. They make references to these things and thinking that, that when it's referring to Christ that it's about Israel, it's about the nation. Even uh, many Jewish people do this today in one of the most poignant passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, that just lays out Christ's crucifixion and what happens there. It would make about themselves as a nation and it's tragic. And totally miss the point that it's about Christ. Totally miss the point that it is about Christ and his righteousness, and that even under the law, we all stand condemned. You know, and we measure our lives by just the Ten Commandments, as Jesus would take the rich ruler in Luke chapter 14, and we measure our lives by them. How many of us would be found perfect by just that standard? How many of the Jewish people here that he is talking to, how many of them would be found guilty, condemned for breaking even just one? And thus God's law condemns us all, 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 all in our sin. Note here the distinction. Jesus doesn't condemn. He told us that in John chapter 3. He came to judge. He will judge. But the condemnation, is just, he doesn't need to. The law and it's our own deeds, our own actions, our own thoughts condemn us. Them, me, you, all of us, all humanity. And see, here's the thing. Jesus knew that. He knew that we couldn't do anything about it. He knew that under God's law, he knew that uh, we were helpless and hopeless to save ourselves. We were as helpless to save ourselves as the invalid was to heal himself. And so he came. But God knowing that we stood condemned under the law, that our sins uh, uh, left us dead in our trespasses, that we, were, we, we, we couldn't do anything about it, and that by breaking God's law, we then stood guilty before him and couldn't do anything to get out. We had nobody to plead for us. And so God sent Christ, our Savior, to live the perfect life, to fulfill all of God's law, to work perfectly without breaking a single one of them through his entire life. And yet he then took the condemnation. He then took the punishment that we deserved on the cross so that by believing in Christ, we might now no longer be condemned. How gracious is that? How glorious is that, church? How incredible is the gospel how good is the good news that Jesus saves? That he uh, is the one that died in our place and rose again, that we might have newness of life. And so even now as we ask these questions, his, his word is our food. His love is our reward. His glory is our pursuit. His life was our rescue. 
And so that even though we are progressing in this, even though we are growing in our holiness, we're growing in these things, God is at work in us and we don't need to fear this condemnation. So the claims have been made. Is Jesus who he says he is? Does he have an authority to save and to an authority over his creation? The witnesses have been considered, a multitude of them. The evidence has been examined. Redemption, make no mistake. Jesus is who he says he is and has an authority unlike any other. He is the reigning king uh, like no other that leads us uh, into a life that is like no other. And so as we anticipate uh, his death and his resurrection, as we head into this holy week, we have nothing but worship of Christ uh, to, to do, to praise him for his glorious grace. Let's worship him or let's pray and then worship and serve him accordingly. God in heaven, here we are. Would you do the work that only you can do in our minds, in our hearts, even as we take in your word? As we take in your claims, as we take in the witnesses, as we examine the manner of our own life, Lord. We need your help. I pray for all of us in here that we would not be among those that refuse to come to you and have life. Who, though the evidence has been uh, spread before us, would reject it. God, do your work in our hearts that we would repent and believe that you are indeed our Savior, that you are indeed our Lord. Lord, and for those who know the, the, the joy of salvation, would you continue just your work in us as we examine these things, God? Uh, our time in your word, our time in your love, our time uh, us pursuing your glory, God. That we would do so not to earn our salvation, that we would not do so to be recognized by others, but we would just do so because we get to, God. Humble us like Christ. Bring us low that you might exalt us not because of all the great things that we have done, but of the great things that you, Jesus, have done for us. God, you are so good. You're so good. And so we worship you now. I pray in Christ's name.